It's good to be with you again this morning. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, um, and it's always a good idea here at the Rock Church because we go through the Bible, uh, we're going to get to this passage that you heard read this morning from our readings this morning, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. We're going to get there. But again, like the last couple of weeks, I will warn you in advance, we're going to take some time getting there. Uh, We are in our, what is it, the third of our Advent series when God came down uh, this week. We will conclude the series basically on Christmas Eve and uh, have a special time of sharing on Christmas Day. But uh, yeah, the purpose behind this, we, we, every year we do an Advent series. We like to do this to just get our hearts and minds prepared as a church and as followers of Jesus on the real reason for the season, which is the coming of Jesus. And it's, it's a refresher. And so we go through the story and we read them all the time and it's, it's great. And so this year I was praying about it and thinking about it. And uh, I really believe the Holy Spirit put it on my heart and mind. Why, why don't we take a look at the arrival of Jesus on the first Christmas 2022 years ago from the perspective of the involvement of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and then this week, God the Son. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, I've heard a few comments that it's been interesting. Um, something that we don't really reflect on all the time because Jesus is kind of like the star of the story, right, on Christmas Day. But we're going to look at that and his involvement in that today. But yeah, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, and one of the lessons I think we've learned so far is that they are very involved, extremely involved. From, From way before the actual arrival of Jesus, literally from the creation until the arrival of Jesus, they're very involved. And then the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, he's busy. He's just very, very busy and very involved. And that's a wonderful thing to see that. And I, I pressed it into our hearts last week that, you know, most of us can, can relate to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? But, but how many of us can say, I have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit? That's something to meditate on. And I, I know some of you in small group this week have been doing that. So again, our outline for the series, as you've seen, as I'll put it on screen for you, we will anyway, has been this, and today we will finish this series with the last of the, what's going to be on screen? Um, yes, the outline for the series. Is there somebody on our keynote today? <laughs> okay. Then. Somehow it's not working. Anyway, I've already been saying it to you. When God came down, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, today God the Son. Before we dive into our message for today, let's pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you, our triune God. Oh, we thank you for um, your involvement in everything, your participation in everything, from creation to redemption to restoration. Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that we we can know you. you. You've revealed yourself to us in your word. And Holy Spirit, you illuminate our minds and our hearts through regeneration and many other things that you do so that we can read the word and we can know you. We can truly know you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, more deeply. So thank you for that. And thank you especially for Christmas. Thank you for coming. Um, That event literally changed everything. And uh, so we thank you for being the change that we desperately needed. And so we pray that you would just bless us in this last look at uh, God the Son, you, Lord Jesus, and your involvement and role 
major role in the incarnation. So I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. So as I've already mentioned, we've, we've already looked at uh, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and their participation in this event. And it was quite remarkable, I think, even as, you know, I'm, I'm doing the research, doing the reading, preparing for it, and I'm like, it, it's just incredible the, the way that both were involved in the, the coming of, let's say, John the Baptist first, like the, the arrangement of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, and then the incarnation of Jesus. And so I, I know that every Christmas, and, and it would be right to do this, and we're doing this, uh, especially today and next week, uh, the, the focus in Advent series and in Christmas messages is on Jesus, right? It, it's almost always on Jesus. Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful. Trust me, you, you, you would, I hope, know that. But as, again, as I'm reading the story and looking at the story, he's kind of silent on this day, isn't he? Like, what's, what's his participation, per se? So we've been, but the reason why I say that, and again, not to be disrespectful, is just to, we've been looking at that, and we've seen how God the Father has been making promises and promises and promises. I will send a Messiah. I will send via a seed someone who will crush the enemy's head. I will do that. Promises fulfilled. Promises fulfilled. The arrival of Jesus Christ. Same with the Holy Spirit, the way that he comes into John the Baptist's life in the womb. That was remarkable, right? And when you think about that, that's remarkable. Same with Jesus. Same with Mary on that day. Same with Elizabeth. Same with Zachariah. He was busy. Extremely busy. Jesus, on the other hand. So the point is, what was his, what's his role on that day in, in, in that picture? And that's what I want to look at with you today um, and see his role as part of the Trinity. Because again, we know it, it starts, as we will see from Scripture, before the foundation of the world. Before the first in the beginning, it starts. His rule and his participation begins. So your message title for today is The Significance of the Incarnation. And I hope to show you a few things from it that are very important, I believe, for us to understand its significance. For us as believers, as followers of Jesus, to appreciate it, but also so we can share it with the world that needs to know the truth of the incarnation. So number one is obviously this, the virgin birth. That is very significant. So as I was thinking about that point, I I was reminded of of something that I used to love to do way back in the 80s. Like, okay, that's like, any of you who are here who are under 40 years of age, you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? You have no idea. But I remember it when uh, uh, it was the 80s, I was during my business career in life, I'd be driving around Vancouver uh, a lot in my, my career, and I'd, I'd be listening to AM radio. Do they still do that today? Does anyone listen to AM radio? Honestly, just, no, people are shaking their heads, no, Glenn, it, we're, it's, I don't either, okay? But anyway, I'm, I'm driving around, and I'm listening to talk radio. I love talk radio, right? And CKNW uh, on your AM band was very, very popular in that day, it probably is still today for those who are still listening to AM. But you, you, there would be these hosts, right? And that they would host the shows. They would maybe give a commentary and, and or they'd have a guest and there would be a commentary with the guest. And then the real, the, real, the, the real entertainment of the talk show was the call-ins, right? So they'd put it out and then they'd open up the phones for you and I to phone in and it was just a gong show, right? It's kind of like social media today. And which as I thought about it, that's what's replaced talk shows, right? social media and podcasts and the like. 
And so there was one particular uh, Sikh and host. He's very famous. I won't mention his name here today. Uh, but uh, he was on the, the show for 20 years. And I think he was the morning guy for about 20 years. But every Christmas, he had this propensity. He had this thing about Christmas, and he wanted to do a little rant every year, and he'd have people on that he would talk about Christmas. And one of the things he would say almost every year, and it would get the phones ringing, okay, trust me, he would say this, why do Christians, in the form of a question, demand that you have to believe in the virgin birth in order to be a Christian? (laughs) That was his line every year, right? And I'm driving going, i got to pull over. (laughs) Like, Okay, and uh, so you would think like Christians would be phoning in and giving him a lot of, you know, theology lessons, not so much. People would be phoning in and going, yeah, and agreeing with him or going off on their own interesting, et cetera, tangent related to Christianity. And why do we need to believe that? Like Adam and Eve, really? Okay, we keep going, but the virgin birth was the deal of that particular Christmas. I want to suggest to you his question is a good one. It was a good question. Then it's a good question today. Skeptics and devout atheists, of course, will smile at us and, you know, tap us on the head or on the back and say, well, that's really wonderful, you know, that you would believe in such unscientific things as walking on water, turning water into wine, raising people from the dead, whether Lazarus or Jesus himself, virgin birth. I mean, they they might say something like this. You do realize that it takes two known scientific elements to create a baby, right? Virgins don't give birth, don't produce babies, they would say. Just like truly dead people do not come back to life. And so it's a good question, really. It's an honest question. Uh, Barna Research, uh, a Christian survey organization that every once in a while I'll throw you out these stats because I... I read these things because I'm interested in what's going on in the church and outside in people's views. They have noted a a gradual decline over the last 40 to 50 years in Christian convictions on a number of biblical subjects and teachings and doctrines. But most recently, they've noticed that the rapidity, which is actually an English word, I looked it up, is increasing. Especially in the last 10 to 15 years, more and more and more, particularly younger evangelical Christians, are beginning to question a wide spectrum of key Christian beliefs and doctrines. There was a day, 20 to 25 years ago, where Barna did a research and it said that 75% of Christians in the United States, as an example, so North America, 75% believed the virgin birth was true, literal and true. Now, you might, you might hear that stat and go, well, that's good. And I'm like, hold on. <laughs> 25% of people who filled out the survey who claimed to be Christian said, no, nah, it's not. It, or you don't need to believe it in order to be a Christian. How, how about the rapidity? Uh, most recent survey is four years ago, and it's somewhere between 60 and 65%. So it's dropping. What's interesting is, the, the number in the, the culture, in the world, the non-Christians, who that hasn't gone down as much percentage-wise as in the church. It's low, but it hasn't gone down nearly as much. So the question then is, why do you, why do you think this is happening? Is it, is it happening because of just the, the pressure in the culture that's skeptical about pretty much everything we believe or what the Bible teaches and we're supposed to believe and obey? Is it just the pressure? Well, it it could be. 
Or is it possible that we've arrived at a point where, uh, and frankly, I see this a lot in a number of different key doctrines and teachings of the Bible, where we're getting to a point where many, not just young, but seasoned Christians are going, yeah, you know, it's interesting, but now that I think about it, maybe it's like this thing over here where we've been reading the Bible wrong for so many years. And maybe if we revisit the whole thing, we'll see that, you know, it's a great story, but maybe it's not absolutely necessary that we believe in the virgin birth. So I suggest to you that that's actually happening on a wide scale to many tried and true teachings of the Scripture, but I actually don't think that's the main reason. I alluded to it uh, a few weeks ago in our First Peter series, again, from my own personal observation and experience, that as I'm looking at it, I'm trying to figure it out because I'm a pastor. You know, I, I, I want people to believe the truth about Jesus and, and the truth of his word. And so I'm looking at it going, what, what's, what's, is, it, is it just because of all the other voices that are out there and, and the naysayers and the critics and those who are apparently Christians but are saying, no, we've been reading it all wrong lately, we need to reread it, and oh, by the way, now look how we can see it. Is it just that? Somewhat. I think there's a deeper reason. And I think the deeper reason is that we are at a crisis in the North American church in foundational biblical knowledge, period. If you do a little bit of look into it, um, it's, it's, it makes sense. After decades and decades and decades of churches and pastors, and I've been part of those churches where it's mainly just topical sermons, it's just felt-need sermons, right? uh, and not necessarily going through books of the Bible, difficult books of the Bible, and difficult doctrinal passages. Let's not go there. Let's, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's because of years and years and that, but also staying away from that word, doctrine. <laughs> you know, I, I've been in circles. I've been at conferences where people will all of a sudden start dropping words like orthodoxy and doctrine, and you, you'll see people wince, right? Okay, because I'm not sure that's a great idea. So I think what is happening in our church in North America is not just the pressure. The pressure's significant. But it's also many, many people, not just young, but Christians have been around a while, get to a point where they're hearing something from the Bible or they're hearing something preached and they're going, hold on, I didn't really know that. And I don't know if... I want to believe that. And so um, that's why we want to look at the virgin birth this morning. I don't want to assume, I'm not going to assume that everyone here is just like, yeah, I'm, I'm with the 75%. But more importantly, it's not just what you believe, it's what are you able to share? Because the message of the virgin birth is the gospel. It's critically important. Peter will get into that further when we get back into 1 Peter in the new year. You're going to love this. In, in chapter 3, verse 15, he actually says this as part of his teaching to the church that's being persecuted in Asia Minor. He says this, that you, we should be ready to give a defense for the truth that is in us. We should be able to defend the truth of God's word. And that's the whole point of the teachings of the church. And so that's our point this morning. We want to be equipped by the Holy Spirit of God to be able to defend our faith in the virgin birth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ 2,022 years ago, and be able to do that from a place of knowledge 
and a place of knowledge of why the virgin birth of Jesus is essential to our faith and to the gospel. So, so what are the key reasons? I, I have two key reasons for you this morning why the virgin birth is essential to your faith, my faith, our faith, and the gospel. The number one reason I want to suggest to that to you this morning is kind of what I've been talking about. It's trusting the word of God. That's the number one reason. Two key doctrines of the Christian faith, again, that are under attack today more than ever are, here's two words for you, inerrancy and infallibility. Now, for our purposes this morning, suffice to say, I'll give you these definitions, very simple ones. Um, Infallible means incapable of error. So the doctrine of the infallibility of the Bible is that it is incapable of being untrue. Secondly, inerrant, also applied to Scripture, means free from error. So they, 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 they dovetail each other. They work very importantly together. So simply put, the Bible never fails. The Bible is always true. Now we have to qualify that by saying in the original autographs, translations can get things wrong, which is why we go to the earliest documents we have to the Greek to double-check things. We try to stay to translations that are carefully looking at that. And so again, from our series thus far, remember what happened, listen, remember what happened after the fall. And this is related to trusting God's word. After the fall of Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, right? After God had put them together in marriage and everything was great, and and then they buy the lie, and then all of a sudden, guilt and shame comes over them. They start hiding from God. God, in, in the cool of the day, goes looking for them, and, and he calls out to Adam, whom he's holding responsible for this event. He says, Adam, where are you? And they're hiding. Once it becomes clear what's happened, where they sort of, as I've said before, confess, God lays out what he's going to do. Right there, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he lays out what he's going to do as a result of what we in Adam and Eve have done. And he says this, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, to the devil, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise only his heel. So God the Father promised that one day, one day, the seed of a woman whom he will choose, will crush the serpent's head, will deal with him and sin in an appointed time and at an appointed future date and in a particular circumstance. So God promised, he promised this, his word is true, and we've seen through our look at God the Father that everything he promises comes 100% true, so we can trust the word of God And so here's what he's doing. And he continues to promise, and we saw this also through the prophet Isaiah. We've heard it read today, right? Whom we heard quoted from the Matthew Gospel earlier, God the Father promising again, Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What a a remarkable prophecy. And here's key, because he didn't say this earlier in Genesis Genesis 3, 15. But look what he says. He says, behold, the virgin." shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. 
And so God's word is, his promise is, this is going to happen through a virgin. That's rather important, I would suggest. So we have, we have the word of God. We have God the Father. He, he repeatedly promises. And then we have the recorded eyewitness testimonies in the Gospels, in the New Testament, of the Virgin Mary being, being visited by the angel, angel Gabriel. She's not being with a man. We we're told that repeatedly. She says that to the angel and confesses that. She says, how's that going to be? And we're told in Matthew's passage, read earlier again, that all the promises come true. Every single promises, every word that God has given about these events comes true. Everything has come true. Everything will come true. Amen? Amen. And so that's the first reason why it's essential. It's essential that we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus because it's about the trustworthiness of his word, his spoken word, his word that was given to us through the prophets and through the apostles. The second reason is, I would suggest, slightly more primary, (laughs) but only slightly. The second reason why the incarnation is incredibly significant is because it deals with, number two, the problem of sin. That's what the incarnation deals with. So the promises that God the Father made were not just that he would deal with our enemy, with, with Satan, with the devil, that, that he would bring justice to this earth in, in that form, and he would deal with evil, and that he would crush the head of the evil one. No, it was, it was also that he would justify you and me. In other words, bring justice to us. Through justification. And that would be the process of how he would deal with our biggest problem, everyone's biggest problem, the problem of our sin and brokenness. So again, you'll remember how well it all started, right? We've been over Genesis so many times here at the Rock Church and even in this series, but you remember how well it started, right? It was just so fantastic. You've got these six days where God creates the heavens and the earth and then he forms this planet and separates the dry land from the waters, and then he vegetates it, and then he fills it with animals. And it's just this pristine, beautiful, glorious place, even more pristine and glorious than it is today. Okay, it's cold. But you know what I mean? Like summer, July. It's beautiful. It's perfect. And then, of course, God the Father, we heard say, to the Son and the Holy Spirit, okay, now it's time that we create man in our image and in our likeness. And let's make them, listen, let's make them viceroys over our creation. And that's exactly what he did. And so in verse 27, we read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So Genesis 2 then, as we've read before, provides more details about Adam being formed by God from literally the dust of the earth, and then Eve from one of Adam's ribs. The picture we get at that point, and it's declared by God himself after the creation of man and woman, it's very good. (laughs) That's God's judgment. It's 
very good. In fact, it was perfect. Perfect in every way. And so were Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were perfect. They were pure. They were holy before God. They were without blemish. They were without sin. Then, of course, we know Genesis 3 happened. So from this early picture, we learn something very important about ourselves, even to this day. From the the Latin Vulgate translation of Genesis, the Old Testament, uh, the words uh, image of God are imago Dei. Anyone heard that before, right? And so we know we are created in the image of God and that we have the imago Dei in us, even to this day. Every human being on this planet, whether Christian or non, has, has but we, we, we need to be careful about this as we're going to see, has a residual, has a, I, 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 I'm careful to even use the phrase a glimmer, a, a, a spark of, because, but it's there. There's a residual of the Imago Dei in every single person who has ever lived, is living, and ever will live. Because we are created in the image of God. There is, however, now, post-Genesis 3, the problem of sin. Years later, uh, Adam and Eve have a couple of kids. Remember those first two? Mm. It's wonderful, wasn't it? Cain and Abel, right? Remember those guys? What did Cain introduce to humanity? Pretty big sin, murder. I, I think of so many times in, in the Bible, and of course the, the flood in Noah is one of those times where God's like, this was a mistake. <laughs> that would have been a time too, I think, where God would be like, maybe mom and dad felt that way. But then after that, Many years later, we don't know how many, but I'm going to estimate somewhere probably around 50 or 60, because maybe more, because we know the age, Moses tells us, of uh, Adam at that time. But in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. They'll be on screen for you. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And look at this. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. And, you know, we get from this the language of mankind, so we have man, we have woman. This is not a, this is not a, a gender knock. This is what God declared we were to be called. So genealogies are great. They're found in a couple times in, in, in Genesis. They're found th- throughout the Bible. We, we know that the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, starts with the genealogy of whom? Jesus. And so genealogies are great. And this is an interesting one as recorded here in Genesis 5. Because what we, what we read about here as we get into it is we really read about the impact of the fall of Adam and Eve. And what we read about here is what we've come to know. I was raised Catholic, so in the Catholic Church, this is, this is ground into you, okay? It's called original sin. Everyone heard of that? This is where it comes from. This is where the concept actually comes from of original sin and It's a doctrine, actually, that we should consider. So you see, Moses, the author of Genesis, he he repeats in the first two verses the Imago Dei languages of Genesis 1.27, which is important because now he's going to add something that's different. Look at verse 3. 
he records, when Adam had lived 130 years, so there is hope for me, no, he fathered a son, look at the words, in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. So Moses added important words that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So this is, this is key and important. This is our lineage. This is the basis of original sin. This is where we've all been, we've been born from this. All of humanity, I want to say, has been born this way. Ever heard that phrase before? See, the, the truth of the matter is, is that there are only, to this point in history, two people who were ever born that way. What is that way? Perfect, holy, righteous, before God, and sinless. And their names were Adam and Eve. But then, of course, the reality is everyone from that point forward is born this way. We're, we're born in sin. Everyone who follows is born out of that. And it's a result of the fall. And, and so I, I know, listen, for some people, that's really hard to hear. That, that's really hard to hear, and I get it, but truth is good. It's good to know it and reflect on it because it is the gospel. Before you hear the really, really good news, you've you, you got to accept the bad news. We have to. We have to do that. And so it, it's the problem of sin, isn't it? So now, again, th- this, this, does this not fly in the face of conventional wisdom <laughs> in, in, in our culture today? Like, even as a, as a good Catholic boy, you know, like, I was an older boy, I rang the bells, and I was trying to be holy and righteous, and I was, I was not. <laughs> I was smoking outside the church in between services. I confessed that already before, Lord, but... We have this perception in our world and culture, and I did, that we're actually born innocent. You know, like we're born like innocent. We're just, you know, and then because of circumstances, because of life, because of the way we're treated by someone else or whatever, you know, then, you know, then we end up doing bad things. And it's, it's, we've fallen as a result of circumstances and other people's influence in our lives and just the big bad world out there. I would suggest that's what most people in our world and culture believe. So question, any parents out there? Any people who've observed parents with young children, right? And I know we've been over this before. I've said this a few times, and I know it can be painful for you. But, but it's the truth, right? You, you take this little bundle home from the hospital, right? And they're so sweet and cute. Like, you know, it's your little angel, right? And then all of a sudden, at some point, it does, I don't know when it is. It could be six months, nine months, definitely around a year. All of a sudden, it's like they've got a little deep... I won't say the word. I won't say that word. But it, let me, let's be clear. The halo has fallen. No? Actually, that's the word that usually lets you know that they're, they weren't born innocent. Son, daughter, don't touch that. No. They got, they got it? Okay, never mind. As we grow older and as we observe not just our children but everyone else, we, we realize, look, 
we have, we have a problem. This world is broken. Our kids are broken. We have a problem of sin. And as I often comment about it, it's what's killing us. Even today, even in the Christian, it's, it's killing us. We're, it's taking us away from living the life that God has called us to live. And it's like a, a cancer. You can't, you know, I look healthy on the outside, but what could be going on inside my body? I look reasonably healthy, don't I? Please say so, yes. But, you know, but sin is resident. It's there. It's fighting with my flesh. Or my flesh is fighting with my true nature in Christ. One commentator said this about Genesis 5, verses 1 to 3. I think it's one of the saddest points in history, is what he said. Adam was created in the image of God. Unfortunately, Seth was made in the image of man. While, while still bearing the Imago Dei residually, still having something of the image of God in him, he is most dominated and marked by the image of man which is the image of fallenness and sin. So he becomes, does Adam, the father of a son who bears his image, not God's. How sad. He also added this later in his commentary. I think this is a good view for us to understand. A sinner can only give birth to a sinner. A saint in Christ cannot give birth to a saint in Christ. That's important for us to understand, especially as parents. But even if you're not a parent, you you have friends, younger and middle-aged and older, who, who do not know the gospel. They have this perception about innocence and purity and being good enough. And, well, if I hang around with Christians or if I come to church on Sunday or at least at Christmas, you know... I might get in. It's much more than that, as I'm sure we all know. And so, what's the answer? Well, the answer is is really good news. There is one other human being who was completely pure, sinless, and perfect before God. His name is Jesus. And why is that? The virgin birth. That's why. And that's how. It's so critical to our faith and to the gospel. Jesus was born by the seed of the Holy Spirit and a woman. Jesus is the the perfect God-man. He took on human flesh as God, the eternal Son. And he will bear that flesh for eternity. So I want to reread with you this morning a passage that uh, Bertie read earlier this morning from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. I promised we'd get there. We'll put up one verse in particular on screen, but let me just read the beginning part one more time. In light of everything I've said this morning, let's reread that. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, we all know what that means, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of God. 
And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly so she wouldn't be shamed and maybe harmed. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, prophecy. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then these words. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Underline these words. And he will save his people from their sin. This is Jesus' role at the incarnation. It's, it's lovely, the picture in the manger. We, we love it. It's, it is. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's incredibly wonderful. The passage goes on to say this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, embedded in the heart of this story, the story of the incarnation, in the virgin birth of Jesus is the truth that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit participated fully equally to provide a way for you and I to be saved from our sins. They were all part of this plan. That's actually the Christmas story. Again, right there at the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, is the promise to solve the problem of our sins. The angel of the Lord gives the promise of God to Joseph, and and look at those words, she will. She might, no, she will. Bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Will will he live a good and perfect life? Of course he will. Will he be the spotless and unblemished lamb when he goes to the cross? Yes, he will. At his birth, this is being declared. It's lovely. It's lovely. And so that's why the virgin birth is essential to our faith and to the gospel. There's so much more, I know, to this marvelous story. My time is limited. So many pictures of, of how Jesus, the eternal Son, again, as we've been looking at this series, realizing that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were those persons in eternity past. They didn't just become the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the incarnation. Realizing that and, and, and absorbing that in your heart and your mind will, will change how you look at a lot of Scripture. So remember that. That's why I highlight it for you. But this eternal Son, the picture at Christmas of him, again, imagine leaving the presence of his Father God the Father, of, of the Spirit, this loving community he's part of, where it's, it's in, in the celestial kingdom, it's, it's outside of space and time. They're, they're not, they're here, they're present, but it's outside of that, it's in this perfect, glorious place, which one day, if you're in Christ, you're going to see. 
and, 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 and he says, within the Godhead, I would imagine, let, let me be the one. I'll go, I'll go down into the womb of a peasant girl. I will be born in a stable. My parents will be poor. I will be homeless and poor. Let me go. And he does. The Gospels give us all these wonderful stories. We reread them every Christmas. We'll reread them on Christmas Eve. I really encourage you to be here. But I got to tell you, my favorite passage of Scripture at Christmas is John's Gospel. It is. I, I, I just I want to leave you with the words from it because I, I love them and what they say about Jesus and what they mean for us and for you and for anyone who's listening. He begins, of course, with what's called the prologos, the in the beginning, before the in the beginning, where, where he's literally talking about the Son of God, the Word of God, the Logos, being with the Father, and he is God, and he, and he, is, the, and he is Jesus, as he will say to us, before the foundation of the world. He talks about John the Baptist, and then he gets to these verses in 9 to 14. I'll read the first and put the last on screen for you. John records this. The true light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, who were born again. Friends, these words are so critically important. They tell us something. They, they tell us like believing in his name, believing in Jesus, believing in the word of God, believing in the virgin birth, believing these things and trusting in the, these things. Jesus will give you the right to become. That's an important word. That means because before that point, you were not. I was not a child of God. That right is bestowed upon us when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You will be born again, and not by human bloodlines or human flesh or human will, but by God. He does it all. You will be part of the blood-bought family of God for all eternity. Amen? Amen. So again, friends, that's it right here. The gospel. John leaves us with these words, and I'll leave them with you too. My favorite words at this time of year. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace full of truth. Pray with me, would you?